Tonight on True Crime Tuesday, we're going to talk about a story about four young girls who were cut down in their youth. Kendra laughing her ass off about it. The growing calls across the nation to defund the police. To end policing as we know it. Off the charts violence in New York City. 11 people shot in just eight hours on Sunday. This is Sunday. about the police officers, officers who every single day put on that uniform and they run towards danger when we run away from it. Guns up, giddy up, Wolfpack. This is Failure to Stop. This is the number one podcast and platform where we entertain and inform first responders and we disturb and annoy our friends and neighbors. I'm John. I'm an active 911 dispatcher in the field. Joining me tonight, as always, is the host of the show, uh, my ex-wife, Kendra Drama, who presents true crime cases here. We do it from a little bit different perspective than some of your other true crime cases and that we're not just a bunch of bitchy people who complain about the police officers not doing their job. Kendra's a former sheriff's deputy, so it was her job to investigate uh, any time when a yogurt shop had four burned bodies in it. That was that was her bread and butter every single day. I'm a 911 dispatcher, <laughs> which means I pretty much take 911 calls that are exclusively like that. Uh, before I get rolling with uh, some ad reads, Kendra, how are you doing? I'm I'm doing great. I'm finally 30. So yeah. What does it feel like to finally be 30? What does it feel like to feel your life? We got chugging down the, the, the toilet, like a turd. What does that feel like? <laughs> um, honestly, it feels exactly like I thought it would feel, which is literally nothing. Feels no different. Yeah. You may want to see if we can. <laughs> possibly see somebody about uh, the nothingness that you're feeling inside. Um, I remember when I turned 30, it was a really long time ago. Um, in truth, turning 30 is really no big deal. Your 20s are kind of, once you get to be about 34, you'll realize what a joke your 20s were. And you're like, I can't believe I thought that was the best time of my life because really it's my 30s. So uh, by the time you get to be 39, you'll realize like, wow, your 30s are awesome right in time for them to be over. So when it comes to uh, life being a turd that your your toilet is struggling <laughs> to carry away, uh, that's what my life is because I'll be turning 40 this year. So, you know, RAP I, fun, uh, John. Yeah. So and, uh, can I um, uh, interject a personal story real quick about, <laughs> about toilets? <laughs> how could you possibly interject on a show that's yours? Go ahead. Well, Okay, fair. Um, first of all, um, yeah, my 20s already feel like they were a joke. So, <clears throat> and that's just because I got this inherent wisdom just from going to bed at 29 and then waking up at 30. But anyway, so uh, <laughs> had to get a purchase a new toilet. And while we were shopping for a toilet, we were approached by a employee of whatever home improvement store we were at and <clears throat> he informed us that apparently they measure flush like flushability by how many hot dogs it can flush down at one time and he was telling us this one can flush like 28 hot dogs and this one can flush like 24 or whatever and I just thought that was very odd so it became I'm a just sharing that with you it became a point of political contention in the aughts because uh, the Barack Obama administration began to litigate low flow toilets and so uh, and incandescent light bulbs. I like high flow toilets. I like incandescent light bulbs. And so Barack Obama took away two specific things that I love very much. I stockpiled as many incandescent light bulbs as I possibly could. And I also moved into a house, thankfully, that has still has a high capacity toilet. So 24 <laughs> to 36 hot dogs. I'm a big guy. <laughs> I wasn't made for a small Barack Obama style world. Luckily, I was able to uh, to find another way to live where the federal government can't uh, say that. I, you know, I'm, ironically, the ironic thing is, is if you've got to dispose of your waste, as we all do, hopefully, if you've got a low <laughs> flow, you're flushing that thing four to five times, and you have you're wasting up so much water trying to uh, uh, develop the inertial drag to take those floaters down. Where with a single high capacity flush, you develop that inertia and you get rid of the turd. It's a lot of starting and stopping with a low flow. 
This is a serious this, political issue. This goes to the heart of yeah. our freedom. <clears throat> sure. This is a political I'm taking spell. it very seriously. Thank you. I'm I taking it very that. seriously. I I, I really am. <laughs> uh, what's the maximum number of hot dogs <laughs> you've ever flushed out of the toilet? I've flushed zero hot dogs down a toilet. So I I've never literally never heard of that um unit of measure before. So see or for, see, for me, it's just like eating hot dogs. You got to grease them up first. You got to get them into to melted butter or lard. And then and then you could do amazing things. Yeah. I really want to stop talking about hot dogs. I know I brought it up, but. Um... <laughs> well, probably the worst part about talking about the hot dogs is that for those of you who miss the subtleties of the art of our conversation, a hot dog is an analog for a human poopy. So. Not. <laughs> Oh, we're all adults here. I don't know about that. Do you, do you die because I said poopy? I, the most... I really regret bringing this up. I regret it known. too because like this is such a this is such a Monday night type of conversation. And they had that last night. Like we're 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 the ones who are supposed to be like. We're the true crime people. Why are we talking about this? This is awful. Only, Why don't you, we, could, um... only you could ruin your own show. Folks, this show is brought to you by <laughs> Ghostbed. Ghostbed's a wonderful company in spite of everything you've heard. Ghostbed would not approve of the conversation we've had so far. So in honor of Ghostbed, we are going to clean things up around here. Folks, Ghostbed's a wonderful company. They want to sell a reasonable and comfortable mattresses all throughout the world. Their whole job is just to make people's lives better. Sleep's such an important part of quality of life. And they want to make sure that you're getting the best sleep possible. If you're a first responder, if you have a stressful job, if you're just a mom who's just not getting enough credit, or you're a hardware salesman who has to try to explain why someone should buy toilets and the, your, most of your wages go to pa purchasing packages of hot dogs. You need a good night's sleep. Go over to Ghostbed. Use the offer code Wolfpack. You can save up to 40% to start. 0% down, 0% financing. Anybody can go over there and they can get their hands on a good night's sleep. And of course, we love Ghostbed most of all, not because they support first responders, although that's great, not because they support dispatchers police officers, firefighters, tow truck operators, correctional officers. No, we love them most of all because Ghostbed, unlike every other mattress in America, is made in the good old USA. 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 Unlike every other mattress made in America, they're the only ones made in America, folks. <laughs> Go out there and get a Ghostbed now, even if you can't afford the, the whole thing, you can get a, a cooling pillow or something to improve your sleep, folks. Uh, we we appreciate Ghostbed. Thanks for supporting the show. Thanks for going a strong. Thanks for giving me a financial incentive and the promise of fiduciary gains. Otherwise, I would not be here on this show. Uh, I think the court order in which I'm compelled to do this show with my ex-wife, Kendra, it doesn't specify a video component. We might be audio only. Uh, we might just be on iHeartRadio. I think that would fill, fulfill the conditions of our divorce. Uh, but Ghostbed makes it all worthwhile. So thanks to them. We also want to thank Factor Meals. Folks, everybody eats. Don't lie. And don't be that guy that's waiting out back behind the hardware store for them to dispose of the day's toilet demonstrations. You can do better <laughs> than hot dogs out of a dumpster, folks. You can go over to Factor Meals. You can use Wolfpack50. That's an offer code. You can get started over there. 50% off. Go on the website. You're going to see over 300 options, including breakfast, which is legally the best meal there is. I love breakfast food. Kendra and I had a long conversation yesterday about like the history and proper ratio of Bergesha waffles. Like it was a whole thing. And she's never had eggs Benedict, folks. <laughs> she's never had eggs Benedict. Hit a one in the chat if that makes you angry with rage. If you're an angrier than a boiled owl that Kendra's never had eggs Benedict, then Go ahead and put a one in the chats. Factor Meals can feed you. Go over there. You can select from over 300 options. This is prepared by chefs. They send it to your house. This is not a frozen meal. This is not a kid's cuisine. This is not a Swanson hungry man dinner or anything like that. They send it to you fresh. It's refrigerated so it's safe to eat. You put it in your fridge till it's ready to eat. You can microwave that for a couple minutes. You're good to go. A delicious meal. You're treating yourself right. You're giving yourself that you know, that great feeling that you get from a good meal. I don't know if you're like me, but psychologically, I love eating. It always improves my mood. So give yourself a great mood. Reverse trick-or-treat style. This stuff will come to your house. Not empty calories. Use Wolfpack50 as an offer code so that they know that Failure Stop sent you. That way they keep pay paying us to tell you about it. 
and uh, we can have some money so we can buy factory meals as well. Do you see how the system works? It's called <laughs> capitalism. In a communistic society, we'd be praising the state and none of us would have any money and it'd be the most boring ass show on earth. But factory meals makes it possible to entertain you folks. Entertainment, vitamins, they're doing it all. Thanks to factory meals for supporting us going strong in another year. Kendra, it's True Crime Tuesday. I know normally you like to talk about disgusting uh, body things, uh, you know, bathroom <laughs> stuff, uh, really stuff that uh, doesn't have any place on the Failure to Stop Network. We got a true crime case. It goes all the way back to, uh, I believe it's Austin, Texas, back in the 90s. I love 90s true crime cases because that's when I was growing up and it was when I first learned to feel fear, you know, about possibly being true crime. It was when <laughs> I would watch Unsolved Mysteries and I would wonder where like certain of my friends had gone after that white man came through town. The 90s were just a wonderfully scary time. It was a good time for crime. And uh, we're getting a lot solved now with... Uh, uh, genealogy and other things like that. But this is one of those terrible few cases that has not been solved yet. So spoiler alert, you're not going to get the kind of closure that you want in the show. You're going to be left uh, with questions. You're going to be left angry and frustrated. So to begin the delightful process of anger and frustration, <laughs> Kendra, why don't you tell us about the case of the four girls who were killed in the yogurt shop in Austin all those years ago? Yeah, so like you said, our case takes place in Austin, Texas in 1991 at a yogurt shop called I Can't Believe It's Yogurt, <clears throat> if I can spit it out. It's a difficult um, time I, to podcast, folks, because everybody's sick. Kendra is still yeah, yeah. She's still dying. I'm also a little <laughs> bit under the weather. I apologize if you hear sniffles. We're doing the best we can. The show is free to you. Ghost bed. <laughs> um, I think... I can't believe it's yogurt is a chain and I want to say that I've been to it before. I, I, that just kind of occurred to me when I said it out loud. Um, What's interesting to me is when I was reviewing the case by listening to various other podcasts, searching for their bad takes, I heard it called, I can't believe this is yogurt. I can't believe it's not yogurt. I also heard it referred to <laughs> as can't be yogurt, which is a possible meaning of the acronym TCBY. I know that mm -hmm. you're too young to remember this, but there was a time when TCBY was the absolute shit. Only Baskin Robbins was out there uh, putting a stop to the massive takeover plans of TCBY. They were everywhere. There was a point where TCBY was merged with Subway, where you could go get a cold cut combo and uh, a delicious frozen yogurt meal. And so TCB TCBY at one point was ubiquitous. I don't know if this was a original chain. This I can't believe this is yogurt. It seems like that's trademark infringement with butter spread and also with TCBY. I don't know. So there's so, the name of the restaurant is what I'm going to. Yeah, and you said that, and that's what I was thinking of was TCBY. We had it down here too when I was a kid, and it was amazing. So forget when what you I just said. I was in college, so <laughs> you keep on going. So this non-chain yogurt shop <laughs> um, in Austin, Texas, Eliza Thomas and Jennifer Harvison are two teenage girls who are friends and they work at this yogurt shop together. They're working at night to close up. So it's just the two of them around both eight o'clock. They're both there. Both minors, by the way, there's there's not a uh, there's not an adult uh, adult manager there, which is strange. Right. Yeah, I mean, it is 91, so I, I'm sure that was totally normal back then. But it's, it's, it's funny talking about the past, if I may further interrupt you and delay mm -hmm. the story. The sure, podcast sure. I heard referred to Austin <laughs> as a small town. They referred to it as a quiet community. I think they had to do this because if you're listening to a podcast that's about a major city filled with crime, you do not feel anything for the victims later. And every podcast has got to be like, well, you know, they, they always lit up a room and they were such a family person. And there's always, there's this weird, there's this weird drive amongst podcasts to say that, you know, this shocked the town. This never has happened here before. This is the kind of place where you leave your door unlocked. Like you, if there, you wanted to do a drinking game for a podcast, these would literally be on there. And for some reason I'm hearing Austin, a major city in Texas, even 30 years ago is being referred to as, mm -hmm. as a small town with almost no crime, there's one homicide detective on duty tonight. He's expecting a quiet night. And then later, I'm hearing that in this neighborhood where this TCBY was, that all the all the houses and all the businesses are all barred up because it's just drug city. 
And so I'm like, why did you bother to paint this this story in the backdrop of a of a provincial town where no crime has ever occurred? And then later you're gonna say like these girls had no business working at this restaurant because the place had been robbed like a hundred times. <laughs> Make up your mind. Some some podcasts need to be edited, and they need to be edited by me. I did listen to one podcast on this, um, and it was three parts, and each episode was an hour long. And this did not need to be that long. And for a very long stretch of the first episode, they <clears throat> the host was talking about how everyone described Austin as like the small town feel. And Californians came and ruined it. <laughs> so, I mean, they did, but I, Austin I don't is think huge. Austin. I don't think Austin was a was, met any definition of a small town, even back yeah. then. Um, maybe it's just because I have a different or better standard of what a small town is because I live in a town of 700 people where trick-or-treaters ask me who the hell I am. Like, that's a different standard <laughs> of what a small town is. But don't try to paint Austin as a small town where nothing happens because people were getting their asses murdered in Austin every night back in the 90s. Kendra, please tell us the story at last. Folks, we'll get you out of here by 830, I promise. <laughs> so... Eliza and Jennifer are working this closing shift at this yogurt shop. At nine o'clock, Jennifer's younger sister, Sarah, and Sarah's friend, Amy Ayers, join them because these two, they're younger. Sarah's 15. Amy is 13. They went to a nearby mall. It closed at nine o'clock. And Jennifer was told Sarah, like, just come to the, the yogurt shop and I'll drive you home whenever we're done. Right. So all four girls are at the shop. The shop closes at. At 11. Around midnight, a patrolman is doing like a business check, right? This is when businesses are closed and you drive around them to make sure no one's hanging out or breaking in or whatever. And he goes to the strip mall where this yogurt shop's at and he notices that the yogurt shop is on fire. Like oh, shit. smoke. Yeah. Smoke is billowing out of this, of this shop. Naturally, this is a place he where people go for frosty treats, not for fire. I won't <laughs> abide this. Precisely. So he calls. Um, he notifies dispatch. The fire department comes out. Fire department goes in, and it's so smoky they're having to you know crawl around to locate the the fire. And they go through the front of the shop. They realize that there's no flames. They they move to the back of the shop, and. This is when they come across um, what one of the firefighters believes to be a human foot. Shit. They extinguish the fire and they discover the charred bodies of four individuals oh. in this back room. So the investigation is, you know, underway and they identify them as the four girls that were in the shop, Eliza, Jennifer, Sarah, and Amy. So obviously it, this is a complicated case because there's an arson aspect to this and the actual crime, like you said, is unsolved. So I kind of want to talk about the way that this was investigated kind of a little bit more than the actual crime, since we don't really even know who, who committed these crimes. Um, the crime scene, obviously everything is completely burnt, but they or, were able to- Or flooded out with water, yeah. Correct, yeah. But they were able to ascertain that this was likely a, a robbery because the scene, the front of the shop looked like the girls were still um, in the middle of closing up, right? Like the top of the ice cream machines were open, there was cleaning rags on the counter, like they were in the middle of, you know, doing the regular stuff. Chairs have been stacked, preparing the dining room for mopping. Yeah. Correct. Um, there was <clears throat> a key in the front door, and but the back door was open. Um, three of the four girls, Sarah, Eliza, and Jennifer, were found stacked on top of each other. And Amy was found a little bit away from the girls lying on the floor. 
when I when I heard the initial description of this, I was I was actually very much weirded out initially because they described them as being posed. However, yeah. I think po posed would not be an accurate way to describe them. I believe that when they were investigating the source of the fire, I believe the attempt was by the suspect or suspects was to destroy the bodies for evidence first. I think they had the the misunderstanding that uh, if you locate all the bodies in one place and set a fire, that you're going to for sure destroy the bodies. However, um, bodies don't burn the way that you think that they would because they're mostly water. And by stacking them all together and starting a fire there, you're you're actually you're you're bodies aren't fuel right because they're so they're so wet they're they're something that's going to delay the progress of a fire so by having three bodies stacked there i think they were actually doing a better job at preserving the bodies now, of course we weren't able to get a, a whole lot of forensic evidence from the bodies because the fire still was intense but i believe that 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 shows that whoever did this was attempting to hide evidence but they didn't really know what they were doing because that wouldn't be the best way to go about it Right. And that's um, that's something that happens occasionally in these cases where people think they're just going to burn a body and it's going to just like cremate itself. But cremation is at like, what, like a thousand degrees or something like that, because you have to incinerate the body, which you can't do with a flame fire like that. You can't no. set a body on fire and no. and the have top it. The top's going to get burned. You're going to get a lot of superficial damage, which I'm guessing if they left behind DNA, that still helps. If mm -hmm. you're trying to, uh, you know, obfuscate the identity, you know, we, sh we it would have to be very hot to, to burn the teeth and uh, various things of bones that would help you determine somebody, a victim's height. You know, the length of a femur would be something you could use to determine their overall height. Uh, their pelvic girdle would determine the sex of the body. You have to get it very, very hot. Uh, to to really get all that stuff away. And like I said, this is not fuel. You're not stacking bodies like it's cordwood. Mm -hmm. They're they're actually going to to hinder the progress of a fire because you know right. they're, they're it's it's dense and it's 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 wet, so it's not going to spread a fire. But I guess it Yeah, was, you're insulating uh, whatever's in it. In you're, you're you're insulating it, but but yeah, I mean, you know, by by stacking, so and I hate and I hate to be sort of inhuman about it because we're talking about underage girls we're talking mm -hmm. about human beings but like the one at the bottom and the one in the middle are obviously they're going to be protected by the bodies that are laying on top right they're not it's 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 not going to increase the heat or anything of the fire by stacking them together if anything by removing channels for air to get in there you're going to make it you know a, a less effective fire so whoever's doing this right. it seems it seems like you know four four girls killed uh posed it seems like you know this would be uh another in a, in a series or something like that. But what I get from it is that it's not very well planned or very well thought out. Right. Um, the rest of the scene when they're trying to collect evidence and items and things like that, as you mentioned earlier, everything is pretty much burnt or evidence could have, we don't know because we don't have it, was washed away by the firefighters, which not their fault. They're there to put the fire out, which is what they did. But it does hinder an investigation like this because, yeah, it, your DNA is pretty much gone at that point. Fingerprints, things like that. There's not going to be any and surveillance the, footage in, in a TCBY mm -hmm. from the night either. Right, Exactly. So there wasn't a whole lot of evidence taken. There was a partial DNA strand that was taken from one of the girls because unfortunately, um, I believe one was confirmed to be sexually assaulted, unfortunately, and the other, one of them was suspected to be, but they were able to get DNA from, from I believe, I believe it was uh, Sarah. I'm not sure. Um, but all of the girls were shot. Two of them were had ligature marks on their neck like they were strangled. Um, Jennifer, Sarah, and Eliza were shot in the head once with a 22 caliber um, firearm. They were bound, gagged, and these were the three girls that were stacked on top of each other. Amy, who, like I said earlier, was found a little bit away from these girls, and she was also shot in the head, but... She was shot twice with two different caliber weapons. So they believe that she was shot once with a 22. It didn't penetrate her skull. And she kind of like crawled away 
but unfortunately the attacker caught up with her and shot her again with a I saw a 38 and a 380 two different sources but either way it was a second gun so um, obviously yeah, she was also pistol whipped and another important mm -hmm. detail that's yes. that's very sad is that the the girls were were bound and gagged with their own clothes so they were stripped naked yes. and uh, that's a sign of a you know a, a sexual assault or a, a deviant personality or someone who's like many of the the big cases that we've covered here but also it just they felt the need to tie them up like uh but it wasn't well planned like they didn't show up with rope or anything or or any kind of commonplace bindings they were having to resort to what was available right and um through context clues and the scene and the amount of victims and the firearms and all that. Um, obviously they believe there was more than one assailant, more than one suspect. But like you said, there's really not a lot to go on. There's no cameras. Um, there's a couple of eyewitness accounts that describe two men, two hooded men or suspicious fellows that were seated at a table close to the cash register. And, um, Earlier, we said that the, the the chairs were put up on the tables, except for that table. The chairs were still down, like people were were seated seated there at some point. Like the um, like the two guys that were seen were still there at closing time, possibly yes. waiting for the restaurant to empty out so that they could attack the girls. And I mm -hmm. believe that that money was taken from the till, which. Mm -hmm. You have to wonder how much money, even even in a cash society like the 90s, where how much money is going to be in the till of a TCBY that's being run by two 17-year-old girls. There's not going to be enough money there to make this to make this robbery worth murder. Right. Yeah. I In a case like this, I, I believe about $550 was taken, give or take a couple dollars. But if it was two men with four teenage girls... And we're just going to assume through speculation and context clues that it was most likely these two men because they were seen there by more than one person. Um, one of them and, was law enforcement, yeah. Yes. And uh, there were probably four or five people, regular customers that came in between the time, between like 8 and 11 when the shop closed. But if they wanted to rob the place, they easily could have done that and left right? The homicide, homicides, four, um, it, fe it feels very sadistic, like they had an opportunity and they took it because they were just there and they could. And that's that makes this really a lot more sinister, in my opinion, because you could have just taken the money and left if that's what you wanted, but you didn't. You stayed and terrorized these four minor girls and killed them. So yeah. it's very disturbing. Um, but this is all that detectives have to go on is this eyewitness account. And um, some of the podcasts, they do, they disparage the crime scene investigator a lot because apparently she mismanaged evidence. She didn't collect enough evidence in their opinion. One of them said that she didn't, process the entire restaurant for fingerprints which um hello it was on fire <laughs> you're not well, going to try to not only that but you're going to get so many prints that are going to come back to unknown people you're just going to muddy muddy the waters i mm -hmm. think i mean the, to me the only advantage that you could have out of that is if you if you get a, a usable print somehow post fire post extinguishing you know some maybe something from the bathroom or something you could run that and then you could find out if someone who's been previously printed is there someone who was printed for, for employment, like that ex-police officer, or someone who's already got a felonious record that might might point you to one person if you're lucky. I mean, they are cleaning the restaurant all the time, hopefully. And so what so what if you find a, a felon who came in and, and got some ice cream? You, you There's know, no I, way. I, yeah, I, I just no I just feel like you, you could expect to get so many prints there that I'm not sure that it would help. Um, but also the, also the, the, the art of collecting fingerprints, I think is commonly misunderstood. I don't, I don't think people, I think people think that anything you touch obviously, or, or every single time leaves an indelible and usable print that you can use to run through, uh, APHIS or whatever. And it's just not like that. Yeah, it's difficult. Like you have to, it has to be on the right surface and, um, it can't like some surfaces it, 
your fingerprints are just oils that are transferred onto a surface and then the the ash that's used to dust the print contacts the oil leaves the pattern you pick it up with tape and then you send it off to the lab but not every surface will pick it up and um, i've had i've had people very angry people who are their house has been burglarized and i'm taking fingerprints off of surfaces that i know will produce fingerprints but i'm not taking them off of textured walls where they could have put their hand because it's not gonna come up and now i just put ash all over their wall <laughs> um but in this case the i can just i can picture the scene in my head i don't know how big this shop was but if it was on fire there's going to be soot and and charred crap everywhere water everywhere uh, because the fire the origin of the fire was on top of a metal shelf where like paper products were kept it's styrofoam so the fire sure. right so the fire spread in like a v-shaped pattern and kind of came down the walls and on the ceiling and everything like that so when the firefighters are fighting the fire <laughs> they're spraying up they're spraying the walls like it it's probably a disaster to come evidence from this scene right yeah, um, I wish I wish one, someone could take a look at a crime scene photo because it probably looked like a bomb blew up in there. Yes, precisely. And there's only so much you can do if the scene has been contaminated, you know. Apparently there were a couple of um, items that went missing at some point, but they weren't entirely crucial to the actual crime. It's still bad um, evidence handling, but it is what it is. I mean, it's not an excuse. I'm just saying. Um, so this is where we're at with this investigation. Not a lot to go on. Um, as they're trying to kind of figure out who could have possibly done this, um, another character comes into this conversation, a detective who had a reputation for, I guess, getting false confessions a lot or being very, um, intimidating and obviously this was another point of contention in a lot of the other podcasts that cover this case because I guess this guy was kind of an asshole right um he some of the tactics that they're describing that he's using I'm not an I was never an investigator so I'm not even going to try to analyze how he did this um, I don't know all the legalities of that type that type of an interview, especially in a homicide case. But the way that they were talking about him in these podcasts, it was very apparent that they don't understand how law enforcement works <laughs> or how investigations work. I don't know how far you got when you were researching or how how deeply you looked into this. I heard people say that uh, that they were they were angry about the tactics that were being used uh, because one of them's illegal in Europe as if that mattered at all. I don't know if you know this, but there's not some <laughs> kind of global court where we're all held to the same standards. The, the people in Sweden or wherever, they have a judicial system that they think is fair by their standards and they get to impose that on themselves. That doesn't mean anything here. And I'll tell you this as well. You cannot have it both ways. You get mad that this case isn't solved. And then the same people who are mad about that We'll also get mad that a quote unquote unethical tactic was used, you know, that a, a detective or something will claim uh, to a suspect that someone else has already ratted them out when they haven't or that they have evidence that they don't have or or whatever. And so so often people are saying, well, the, uh, you know, the police lied to me and it's just like we have no obligation to tell you the truth. We will do whatever we have to do within the confines of the law, which gives us a much broader scope than simply lying to you or not lying to you and that's at, uh, lying to a suspect is is very much a way of uh putting leverage on a person to get them to comply or to confess now if you have nothing to confess um then you know as long as you're not lying you're going to be fine um <laughs> I, now that takes us into a, a broader territory where we talk about what's morally and legally unconscionable one of the podcasts mm -hmm. I heard, I don't know if they were talking about it in this case specifically or another case with the same investigator. 
But a police officer detective at one point uh, brandished or pointed his firearm at a suspect in order to coerce a confession. We, we both know that that's assault. Uh, it's illegal. It's a coerced confession. Nothing that comes after that conversation, after that gun is pulled, uh, is going to be usable. Even if they they confess to stealing the Lindbergh baby, it's not going to stand up at court because after that, after the weapon comes out, after there's coercion, it's it's not going to work. Um, but but there are a lot of tactics that people find distasteful that are totally within the realm of the law, and that police should use to find and convict people who murder and kill and burn little girls. Yeah, the whole the whole they lied to to coerce you to confess to something that you didn't do. Um, there is absolutely nothing that prevents law enforcement from lying to you to get a like you were saying to get a confession or figure out if somebody is even involved or like by process of elimination. Like I said. I was never a homicide detective. I never interviewed high-profile suspects like that outside of, like, initial contact, right? But I think the intricacies and the legalities behind investigating is better left to, to the actual people who get trained to do it and who are professionals and really understand what they can and can't do within the confines of the law, and, and they know how to investigate correctly. It seems, um, I think when you're looking at it from a non-law enforcement perspective, you're, you're probably putting yourself in the suspect's shoes and you're not probably looking at it from, um, I would think, maybe they're looking at it from like, my friends are lying to me to get me to say something that I didn't do or don't want to say or don't want to do or whatever. Not... I'm a homicide suspect and I'm being interviewed. Like it's a serious thing. And if we aren't letting law enforcement use certain tactics because you think it's not right, or you think it's whatever, or you do it different, then you're probably not going to get a lot of solved cases. So <laughs> yeah, uh, I was <laughs> going to say, we, we have so much, we have so many rights protecting everyone. And I'm very much a civil rights person and you have all kinds of rights and, infraction of these rights are all they're all grounds for appeal right even if you get convicted but if you want to take away every tool of leverage that police officers have just goodbye the right the rights of the individual are going to completely out, outweigh the ability for police officers uh to solve crimes other than just saying like hey we've advised you of all of your rights with that in mind do you want to tell us anything and then they'll say like i absolutely did it short of that like you're not going to get anything so Folks, police officers need need leverage and they need tools to investigate and solve crimes. Now, in this case, people are putting themselves in the shoes of people who these suspects who had these uh, coerced confessions, because as we'll come to find out, some people were convicted and later exonerated or they're still they're still suspects, but the convictions were overturned or set aside. So we put ourselves in, in their position because it's like, well, they were wrongfully in prison. Whatever happened to get them there? But the per, who we should really be uh, thinking about and whose side we should take is is the victims. Okay, I, like I just said, I respect civil rights and I, I don't want any police officer to violate anyone's civil rights. I want to see those intact every time. With those tools and with those rights, police officers can still, within the confines of the law, go after and, and develop a case and find evidence to convict people. But the persons we should be thinking about are always are always the victims because their rights have been violated too. Everyone has the right to live. Everyone has a right to go to work when you're 17 and uh, make money so that you can buy your car, you can buy a prom dress or whatever. These girls all had rights that are have been irrevocably violated. Right? There's no there's no appeals court for these four girls who are gone, or for their families who are hurting, or or for the lives that they never get to lead out, or the damage to everyone who surrounds them. Uh, the community, the police officers who had to see the bodies, the firefighters. There's a huge number of people who are here who have had their rights violated. And we need to also keep in mind that police officers most of the time are, are operating in good faith to uh, pursue justice for those victims. So let's not get too lost in the weeds about some kids who were in possession of firearms when they shouldn't have been or mm -hmm. whatever. We, we, have, we have laws and we have rights for them. 
and they'll be they'll be respected and when violated it'll be rectified so the system is in place for that let's keep going with the case since now i'm off my <laughs> soapbox again it's a great soapbox because it's important to remember like like i said one of the podcasts that i watched was in total three hours for this case which is way excessive and most of i mean that person can do their channel however they want I'm not saying that i just mean um people do tend to get lost in the weeds with things like this because they want to nitpick and make everything law enforcement's fault because i think they're trying to find a reason why because this is horrible they need a scapegoat instead of yeah. instead of blaming instead of blaming the suspects who have yet to be identified and still have and still have instead of seeding our our righteous indignation and anger on those people finding them and bringing them to justice we just get frustrated and we just take the easiest route well who can we blame who could satisfy our anger now well the police because it was their job right. and it didn't happen so I, I i think that people are carrying around a lot of a lot of anger and frustration which is fine well, let's make sure we're pointing at the right direction. Every police officer wants to solve a case. There's no homicide detective that wants to be like, well, I failed on this one or I screwed this up or mm -hmm. you don't you don't get to be a homicide detective. You don't get to reach that level by being someone who's unconscientious about doing their job or someone that doesn't want to figure it out or someone that's not passionate about the law or whatever. You Once people are in that position, they generally do care. Yeah, there's, there's cases of burnout or whatever, but Whoever was assigned to this case and saw four dead girls, one of at least one of which was sexually assaulted, I guarantee you they did not have a laissez-faire, let's however it turns out, or let's see how it works out kind of attitude about mm -hmm. it. They wanted to solve the case. Yeah. And these I mean, the youngest one was 13, which is it's it's always I mean, obviously 17 and 15 are way too young to be you know, taken out of the world like this, but I just think, you know, 13 is so young. I don't know. It, it just, for whatever reason, it shouldn't matter because like you said, these were human beings and they had rights to live, but it just, it just hits different when it's somebody that young, especially dying in a way such as this very violent and horrible, you know? I, I understand. I understand the frustration, but let's save it for the for the assholes that did this. Correct, correct. And like we've said and reiterated, law enforcement had pretty much nothing to go on at this point. And when they were doing their investigations, um, they it it had been a couple of years. Um, the suspects that were they were kind of thinking did it were twenty at this point, and this happened when they were. I think 16 and 17. So it's been unsolved for a few years at this point, right? They gather these, these men um, and they bring them in for questioning. Their names were Robert Springsteen, Michael Scott, Maurice Pierce, and Forrest Wellborn. Um, you mentioned earlier that these, these are the four suspects where one of them um, during questioning kind of confessed to it, said they, because they were in possession of firearms at the time. And it was believed that he was confessing and implicating his friends to somehow get around the firearm charge, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but I think this is why people nitpick because of the way that it ended up. This is why people nitpick the um, investigation tactics of Hector Polanco, which that investigator I was telling you about earlier. And, they, you know, some of the some of the people that are analyzing this, they go into the um, false confession stuff, like the psychology behind a false confession, the different types of false confessions. And apparently um, this individual was interrogated for several hours. There was like a good cop, bad cop type thing. Um, but inevitably, the confessions of Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott got wound them up in trial for the murders. Which, before you blame the cops on that, that means the state's attorney has taken the mm -hmm. evidence in front of a grand jury and a jury of their peers has indicted them saying that, that the prosecutor has enough evidence to even to proceed to trial. So you have all these checks and balances. You want to say that, well, the police, you know, did the wrong thing. Well, we also have a state's attorney who believes that this is a good case. And as you've mentioned before, a state's attorney is not necessarily going to take a case to trial that they don't think that they can win because of course mm -hmm. their win loss percentage is just like 
a sport or anything else. They don't want a bunch of losses on their record. They're going to take good cases. And those that they don't think they can win, they're going to try to try to use to leverage into a plea. And if they don't have enough evidence for leverage, that's also a sign that they shouldn't be taking a case to court. So, Correct. Especially not a quadruple homicide. (laughs) Yes. You say the police messed up. You say the police coerced us because the police wanted to be seen as solving the case. Well, your state's attorney is doing the same thing. And you also have whoever was on that jury that granted those indictments saying you have enough to at least proceed to trial. And if they were convicted, you can also blame uh, the jury that sat the case and heard the evidence and convicted them. So, so often, again, I'm on my soapbox, but it's like people want to blame the police for this wrongful conviction. A lot of people who are put into place by our system so that to ensure fairness all failed and convicted these people wrongfully. Yeah. And I, I think at this point when I was researching the case, I was like, okay, what about that DNA that was, that was collected? Why are we not at least, I mean, it's 91. Well, by the time this is rolled around, it's probably like 95, right? It's still not great time for DNA, but they had a partial strain and they were able to run it. um, And there was apparently some sort of match initially when they ran it. Yes. Initially, um, it didn't come up to anything because I don't know what their, I don't remember what their DNA system were that they ran it through the first time or if it was just their own lab trying to analyze it. They didn't have anything in their, in their arsenal. So when they ran it through CODIS, there was a profile match, um, but not till 2009. <laughs> um, this, oh, we'll get to that. That's kind of skipping ahead actually, but there was DNA. They did run it. And initially they didn't have anything to go on. So the DNA goes back into evidence and it stays there. The, the trials go on for Springsteen and Scott, which I thought was kind of funny because Michael Scott is um, a main character in the office and he has a character called prison Mike. (laughs) So this guy was the real prison Mike, but they basically, um, they got convicted, like you said. And uh, one thing I want to touch on real quick, when you were talking about the the failure after failure for it to pass, like they didn't do it test. I understand that like there is such a thing as false confessions. And I do understand that a regular person isn't probably going to be um, mentally equipped to handle that type of an interrogation. But it is your responsibility as a citizen of the United States, know your rights Mm -hmm. and you should be very aware of them and you should be putting them into practice, especially if you're being accused of a quadruple homicide. And if you, if you don't know your rights and you don't understand what you can and can't do and what you, what you don't have to be put through, right. As a United States citizen, you better be in it invoking your rights or you could end up in this situation. So it's also their fault. Why are, you know, if you didn't commit this crime, it's not like a petty, like drug charge, you know, this is a, a robbery and a homicide of four minors and an arson and like a bunch of other charges. And if you genuinely didn't do it, I'm not saying that they did do it. I'm just saying, if I was in that position and I'm being accused of a crime, I didn't do something that serious, especially I would definitely be refusing to speak to them. I, I just don't, there's a little bit of blame that needs to be put on them as well. Cause they are adults at this point and they should know their rights. So. Yeah, I, I but, agree. I mean, uh, it's, a, it's their failure for not knowing their rights, but also, you know, um, I don't want to get into it. I could go all day on this, but it's like school. I know. You know, school school fucking teaches you what magma is, but they don't teach you like, you know, why you should if you're if you're if you're in a custodial situation and you're being asked uh uh substantive questions about your involvement in a crime, you know, why you would not want to answer those questions. <laughs> some for some reason we have civics courses, we have we have social studies, but we're not actually teaching people how to function in the real world through those things. We'll just well, tell them that the vice president cast the tie-breaking vote in the Senate, but not actually tell them something they need to know, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you, and I I, I do agree with that. Um, and these guys were still kind of young. They were 20, so, I mean, it's not like they're 40-year-olds and they should know better at this point, but just a message to you folks out there. Know your rights. 
and don't get yourself in a situation where you're confessing to a quadruple homicide that you didn't commit <laughs> because these two guys um, were convicted of the murders and they were sentenced to prison life sentences. And um, they stayed in jail for, for a while. They were not, their convictions were overturned in like 2006, 2007 and it was for procedural errors on the, um, def- uh, not the defense, excuse me, the state, the way they conducted some of the, um, some of the trial process was against con- some cl- constitutional clause and it was overturned. And I guess the state tried to pursue it again, but they, they didn't have enough to pursue it again. So that just goes to show this whole thing from start to finish was kind of like, muddled up and it wasn't necessarily law enforcement's fault. There's a lot of people and steps involved in between an arrest and a conviction. Right. So, um, and I have said this and I will, <laughs> I'll take it back. I get not take it back, but this is, there's an exception to every rule. Right. I have said before that if you go to trial and you get convicted of something, you probably did it. Cause you don't get that far unless you've you're implicit in some way, shape or form. Right. Well, if we're just speaking by the letter of the law and the way that this turned out and the black and white of it, obviously that's not the case here, right? Because there's no real evidence. And that was the problem. There was no real physical evidence. There's just a confession. Really, that's what it boils down to. Um, But by 2007, these two are free. Their conviction was overturned. And the case is still now unsolved because they were incorrect in their um, who they identified as a suspects, right? So 2009, this DNA thing comes back up. Um, investigators are put back on the case because it's a cold case at this point, and the DNA profile matches. It gets a hit in CODIS, but the FBI won't release the um, match the information because it was obtained through an anonymous donor and and there are laws that protect people um, who donate DNA anonymously. Um, One of the other issues with that though, because I, I read that and I was like, what for a homicide investigation? I feel like that should be, you know, a clause in the law or something like that. Well, it seems seems like a, or at least they'd be able to ask for a warrant to release the name and say the probative value outweighs you know, the privacy concern of the person who donated and suppose, suppose, so the court gets a handle or gets the name of the person who donated that DNA and it's not a match. You can seal that record. You could still protect the privacy after the fact while still exploring or use, you know, mm-hmm. the probative value of having that evidence on hand. I think, I think the public interest in solving a quadruple homicide and, and I'm very much into the rights of the individual and I don't like my, my DNA being in a database, but it was already submitted. The DNA was already there, right? It wasn't like they were going out and, and, and trying to issue a warrant to go find some guy and do a buccal swab. They already had it in hand. It seems to me like they could have just had one person open up the envelopes, a double blind, say, is this a match? Yes or no. And then once it's a match, you'd say, well, let's, uh, let's unseal the names. Right. Well, one of the issues, and, and that makes perfect sense, and I think that that's I am, an, I am a non-attorney spokesperson. I am very good at the law. <laughs> These are our suspects, um, by the way. Um, top left, more Maurice Pierce, Forrest Wellborn, Robert Springsteen, and then Michael Scott, lower right. Uh, they were questioned within days of the murders, uh, but then lack of evidence eventually cleared all of them. I guess the only thing that they had was the the possession of the one firearm that was supposedly used in the in the scene, and then the the confession. So once those get tossed out, it's almost like, well, there's not enough evidence to keep them. I guess is right. eventually how it eventually turned out. Yeah, and uh, Robert looks like Will Forte. Just want to throw that out there. I just noticed it could that. be. It could. It could. And I <laughs> and I don't want and I don't want to speak out of turn, but it could have been Will Forte. I don't know. It probably wasn't. It might have been, but we don't know that for sure. Um, one of the issues with the DNA, not just the anonymous donor, but when I, when I dug into it, cause I was like, that sounds wrong, right? Well, apparently the DNA, because it was only a partial, the reason why it hit on somebody 
was because a Y chromosome matched. I'm not a DNA expert, so please, if you are, then let me know <laughs> how to properly say this because I don't really, un I don't fully understand how DNA works, but apparently the Y well, chromosomes and other... This is uh, from a CBS article about it. C.C. Moore, a DNA expert and a genetic genealogist who was interviewed for an episode of 48 Hours, told the CBS correspondent that the YSTR DNA is sometimes a tool used in criminal cases. She explained it can eliminate almost everyone except the suspect. If the YSTR does not match, then they did not contribute to the, to the DNA uh, because where that DNA was found in this case, it's very important. So I guess it's there. It, it only has a partial sample and it's missing some, some important part that helps you match it to a person. So all you can do is yeah. this is almost at this point is like a fingerprint. You can have a suspect take a DNA sample from them and say, well, does it match this partial DNA sample that we have? So, you know, you can't use it to search for people, but you can use it to exclude someone. So the DNA is not it, the DNA is almost like a fingerprint, right? You have to have a suspect to fingerprint. You have to have a suspect to take the DNA from, and then you can compare it to what little was left behind, saying yes or no. To, is this a, is a, at least a partial match? Yeah, and the partial match for this DNA sample for that that YST. Sorry, I already forgot it, but apparently it also um, the the odds of it matching it could have matched thousands of other people. And that was the problem with this particular DNA sample. It wasn't enough genetic material to it, it say could have matched if it was someone. Yeah. Let's, let's say, uh, you know, it was taken from a guy who's, you know, 40 or uh, he's 50% white and he's 25% black and 25% native American. It could have matched a whole bunch of people who matched that genetic profile. And what does that mm -hmm. mean in terms of a conviction? It means reasonable doubt. So, the mere fact that it, the, the mere fact that it could match thousands of other people means all the all the defense attorney says like well it might have matched a lot of other people who have this DNA profile so that's reasonable doubt right there when you have a DNA match that's 100% exact the um, the the likelihood that it could be another person is usually like 20 quadrillion people right like it couldn't be another person in the history of all human beings who have ever lived, because I don't right. think a quadrillions of people have lived on this earth. Like we're up to like 8 billion right now to l let alone a quadrillion. I don't think we've even reached a single right. quadrillion since the human race uh, was created. Uh, so that's the kind of certainty that you get with a hundred percent DNA match, a partial, you know, you, you're able to exclude someone saying, well, they're definitely not this because they don't have these markers. Right. Exactly. And, as you said, it's funny the the um, hypocrisy or irony or ignorance, if you will, of podcasters and other people who weigh in on these things that don't have even just probably basic knowledge of how all this stuff works. Um, they will, in one case, chastise you know, prosecutors and law enforcement for pursuing someone who isn't like a hundred percent DNA match, right? Because it's not thorough and it's not correct and it's whatever, whatever. But like in this case, they're complaining, bitching essentially because they had a match, but they didn't pursue the leads. Right. And it's like, well, how do you want it? You were talking about rights earlier and it struck up a thought that, with the false confession thing. They get mad about stuff like that uh, because the cops are are berating poor, innocent people, um, which, by the way, you have the luxury of knowing is innocent because you know the, the conclusion of the case when you're reading about it for your podcast. But at the same time, they're confused and bewildered that investigators have to let real suspects go because they don't have enough to arrest them on yet. So it's like, right. how do you want it? Do you want people to have their own, to have rights? Or you just want to cherry pick when people can and can't have civil rights based on how you want this investigation to go. So you can have something to say on your podcast. It just blows my mind. But anyway, that's just my personal two cents on that. We're angry. But, and as it said in previous episodes, only you and I, are behaving appropriately in society. All everyone else is suspect 
and uh, open to criticism, but you and I are good. <laughs> Correct. Um, <laughs> Because we're self-aware, so we can get away with it a little bit more. Um, yeah, well, yeah, we're at least but, aware of our bullshit. Yes. So, unfortunately, be, do, because of all this, we this case has a lot of twists and turns, but ine- eventually and inevitably, um, it it's still unsolved. It's still a cold case. There have been um, statements from law enforcement that they're getting closer and closer with the DNA that they have. But really, honestly, I don't know if that's true. I hope it's true. I know sometimes law enforcement, um, they're not straight up lying, but they do kind of fluff things up to make people feel better about it, especially with cases like this. I mean, it's like if it's like 30 something years old now and it was four innocent lives that were taken. The um, Jennifer and Sarah's parents lost two daughters, two children, and it and obviously Eliza and Amy's parents suffered immensely as well and at the end of the day those are the people that really really suffer from this and obviously you know springsteen and scott who went to prison for this and they were were wrongfully convicted but it it reaches more than just the actual victims it goes it spreads to everyone that knows these victims and are involved and to go that long without an answer is just I can't imagine the hell that these people have to go through on a daily basis just to get through the day. And like you said, at the end of the day, that's who we should be focusing on is the victims. And it's fun to sit and speculate and the star of the night. Yeah. Who is that? No, I'm saying at the start of the night, you should still be thinking about the victims. Yes. Not just at the end of the day. Correct. I thought you said the star of the night and I was waiting for you to say something quippy about a random person that has nothing to do with this. And it's related to some inside joke that we have. Oh, it's hard. Yes. It's so hard to know when I'm (laughs) talking about something that only, you know, or when anyone else might know it or when I'm just behaving strangely. Uh, I have ruined this podcast through my behavior the past several months. No, (laughs) no, you have not. Uh, You've made it delightful. We'll get dead leg on here or something. We'll figure it out. Uh, we'll find some way to, to, to save the show. She laughs at the, at the... That was so such a put down to Josh. Oh, we'll get Josh on here. And she laughs. Uh, he he used to host the show. So, uh, you know, this show... I, on, on Tuesday night, everybody gets a turn. So it, it, it'll we all just go around and uh, some somebody will be hosting <laughs> it uh, soon. So... Uh, this is the rotisserie of... True crime shows. This is a rotisserie chicken on Tuesday nights. If, if, if you like, <laughs> if you like what you're getting here on Tuesday nights, enjoy. Will last, man, because who the hell knows, right? I'm just kidding. We'll be here forever, uh, due to <laughs> the law. Uh, Kendra, let's. Uh, we could wrap it up. I mean, like, I don't want to go on for three more hours like certain other shows. Do you have any other <laughs> final? Do you have? Do you have other final final thoughts on this case before we close it out? Other than just to say, like, this is a bunch of bullshit, and these girls deserve better. I mean, that's that goes without saying that obviously these girls deserve justice and their families deserve answers and and closure. Um, There was speculation that a serial killer that was in the area was responsible for this, and he did give a deathbed confession for it. But there was really nothing that actually connected him to it. So we'll we'll never know. In fact, he lied about some of the details. He said that he he had mutilated remains, which they weren't mutilated. So right. that's just some asshole trying to get a little bit of more infamy before he goes out. And I don't doubt yeah. that at all. Like we've talked about cases here before where, you know, inmates will, you know, convicted felons, they'll they'll lie about certain details so they can get out of prison. Oh, I, I hid the body over there, so just so they can enjoy a day trip. There's plenty of they have they have no scruples at all, which is why they wound up in this situation. So I'm not surprised there was there was another false confession by a more notorious person trying to right. trying to pad their resume in the Air Force uh, serial killer Hall of Fame. Brought to you by Air <laughs> Force. Aim high. You know I'm I'm not at all surprised that that would have happened. Uh, Kendra, if someone wants to reach out to you and, and give you a case on the show, this literally happened yesterday where someone sent me a case and I'm just like, why are you sending it to me? I I actually don't host the show. I'm the one that just turns it on. And Kendra is the one that makes the show happen. She's the Kendra is in charge of all programming. How can I reach out to you? Well, you are carrying the show. Um, your your names that you come up with on here. If you're not watching, 
you should because it's quite hilarious and it gives a lot of context to the bullshit that we say. Um, you can find me at true crime underscore drama on Instagram. I also have an email address. It's truecrimedrama at gmail.com. Go follow me on Instagram because uh, that's I'm on Instagram all the time. That's how you're going to get in touch with me. I have had people send me some some cases too. If I don't respond right away, I'm not ignoring you. I have a very long roster of cases. I have like a running master list of cases that I want to cover. But if you if you find one that you think would be interesting and I'll look into it and um if it's crazy enough, I'll I'll bump my roster and and put it at the top cuz I'm I'm all about getting new ideas. I mean, half the battle is finding cases that you want to cover because Researching is quite monotonous when you don't really care about the case, right? So I'm open yeah. to suggestion. So go follow what me I, on Instagram. What I'd like and to email see me is stories. If you, come, <laughs> if, you, if you come across a case that you think Kendra can solve, put in the subject line, <laughs> solve this case. Former, former law enforcement officer and investigator of listeners of other podcasts and readers of Wikipedia, Kendra, will figure out who solved your loved one's murder. You can go ahead and send that to her at Kendra at gmail.com. <laughs> Folks, if you like this podcast, you can watch us on YouTube, which you probably all right now. Make sure you hit like and subscribe. Hit the little notification bell so you can be told everything that's going on with failure to stop. You're going to want to do that. You can also uh, listen to us on Rumble. If you don't like the censorship, military, industrial complex, deciding what your brain thinks is entertaining, you might go over there. Uh, we have been a little bit throttled on YouTube recently. Some weird stuff's been happening. I'm not allowed to use like Hillary Clinton pizza. Well, now we're demonetized. Damn it, John. I'm not allowed to say or do certain things on fine. YouTube. It's fine. Uh, Thursday nights, every <laughs> illegal shift episode has been demonetized so far. You would think that that one would be fine, but I keep using copyrighted material. Listen to us <laughs> on Spotify or iTunes. Leave us a five-star rating and review. Folks, on iTunes, you can leave us a review. It really helps us out for whatever reason. That's the heavy hitter of all podcast platforms. Leave us a message over there. Kendra will read it in her strongest Irish brogue on the show. And she will also buy you a pepperoni personal pan pizza for your participation. And we would really appreciate you uh, letting us know uh, that you like the show. And uh, pass it on to a friend as well. If, you, if you're a law enforcement or first responder and you like the fact that we're, we're silly and dark about this stuff, uh, and we have a different perspective and that we don't like people who criticize the police uh, because there's enough of that going on out there. Uh, tell them about our show. We'd appreciate it. Uh, as for yes, me, please. You, can find, you can find me on Instagram as well. And I have over 100 shows on this platform. So if you don't know how to reach out <laughs> to me, then you just don't, you just don't know what you just don't want to do it at this point, which is fine. Cause I don't have as many followers as Carly's dog beignet, but I have some, damn it. And that's enough for me. So, whatever, man. Whatever. Whatever. Whatever, man. Don't get true crimed, don't whatever. Don't, don't get true crimed or whatever. Whatever bullshit that, you know, it's whatever. Stay safe. Make yeah. good decisions. Or whatever. Happy birthday, Kendra. <laughs> <laughs>